Hey, Paul, how's it going? G'day, Sean. Can you hear me? Can hear you perfectly. Where in the world are you? Fantastic. I'm in the land down under in Australia, which is why it's pitch dark behind me. <laughs> not even yet. I've got up early to be with you. Oh, well, we really appreciate you doing that. Thank you very much. And for the viewers who are not familiar with your work, can you just say a little bit about yourself first, Paul? Sure. Well, people know me for my work in the field of paleo contact. And paleo contact is the theory that in the deep past, our ancestors had contact with other civilizations from elsewhere in the cosmos with other species. And how I got into this route is what surprises people. It's from a background in church ministry, 33 years as a church doctor, theological educator, training pastors, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. And it was through that work, in a funny way, that led me into this world of ancient ET contact that I now write about. So, if you're in that on that conventional route then, what were the triggers or the things that you uncovered that started to make you think differently? And then were you conflicted with what you'd already been taught? Yes. Well, it was really the mid-role that I mentioned that got me down this rabbit hole and that was being a theological educator because the topics that I was training pastors in were the history of Christian thought and that's quite an interesting topic all itself because when you go back to the beginning of Christianity you discover it was a kaleidoscope of theologies, experiences, practices and that within that kaleidoscope conversation about populated universe was quite mainstream. But it was the other topic I taught that uh, really um, led me down this path, and it was hermeneutics. And that was providing pastors with the tools to interpret ancient texts. That's what hermeneutics is, the principles of interpretation. And so I would teach pastors things like source criticism, which is where you look at the text in front of you and you ask, where did it come from? Is this the original version of the text? And if it differs from the original, how and why does it differ? And then form criticism, where you ask, what kind of literature is this? Is this propaganda? Is it history with interpretation? Is it poetry? Is it prophetic? Is it apocalyptic, which is where a writer has seen something he hasn't understood, and he's just written it down to see how the reader will interpret it? And then the third tool, essential one, is what do the words mean? And it was applying those basic tools to some of the anomalies in the stories we tell from out of the Bible that signaled to me there was another layer of story in our familiar texts that was not about God creating Adam and Eve and, and them leading to you and me. There was another layer of story that was about other kinds of entity. And ultimately, as I did the translation work, I realized that with root meanings of keywords and sites, the hidden story is all about paleo contact and human origins. Wow. So your path to this is absolutely fascinating. And as you are performing these interpretations, then what were the, you know, the, the very first things that started getting your, your brain, you know, really excited about this? 
Well, it was work I, I had been waiting to do for ages. I, I remember just a few years ago preaching through the book of Genesis in a church and thinking, that's the last time I want to do that scratching around on the surface and thinking I've got to go back and look at that again because there's something else going on. I've got to invest the time into these translation questions. And I was given the opportunity by uh, an ultimate Frisbee injury uh, is uh, how I reference it in Escaping from Eden. And it's true, I really did injure myself in an ultimate Frisbee match. But I kind of use it as a code for all the time the universe has given me for study of these things. And I've been waiting for a while to go back to the question of might there be other entities in the scriptures that we haven't fully acknowledged I've been waiting to do that for some years, really since the Vatican, to my great surprise, had stepped forward in 2009 with its uh, colloquium. Now, this was where Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative pope in my lifetime, and I should say I'm not a follower of popes. I was working in the Anglican Church, but I couldn't help noticing that this very conservative pope had just asked the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to hold a symposium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And when I saw that, I could have fallen off my chair because it was not that long ago that the same institution was burning to death people for just suggesting we might be living in a populated universe and there might be intelligent life on other planets. And so they held the symposium and then senior spokespeople for the Curia stepped forward and we heard from Jose Gabriel Funes, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, saying we should all be ready to uh, embrace a brother or sister alien. We shouldn't be surprised to meet them. There's no theological issue. It just means the creator's been busier than we thought he'd been <laughs> and that we're part of a bigger cosmic family. And I raised an eyebrow. And then we heard from Monsignor Corrado Balducci, and he's the Vatican's senior advisor in paranormal ministry and what that usually means is entity removal things like exorcism deliverance ministry and he stepped forward and he said when people report close encounters they are not for the most part reporting a psychotic break they're not reporting a demonic encounter they're describing an encounter with a totally different kind of entity one that merits serious study and when someone of his seniority says that, you know he's speaking for the Pope at that point. And then we heard from uh, Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, who's a senior astronomer with the Vatican Observatory. And he said the thing that really threw down the gauntlet for me, he said we shouldn't be surprised to come across ETs and to experience contact because he said they're in the Bible, they're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, I thought, what? Wait, have I? Re is it possible I could have missed something as glaring as aliens in the Bible? <laughs> and it really was a challenge to theologians around the world to go back to the texts and find aliens in the texts. Now, it wasn't totally beyond my worldview this might be possible because I had come to the view that we're living in a populated universe. But when I did the work, went back to the text, did the translation work, I was blown away to discover that contact phenomena are described in the Bible from start to finish. And doing the translation work was like Neo taking 
the red pill in the matrix it totally changed my world i couldn't go back to reading it the old way because the old way actually doesn't make sense and it resolved some questions the kind of questions that anyone asks reading the genesis stories where you read acts of violence genocide the most appalling abusive behavior families being punished for seven generations for some mistake great great grandfather made when he was actually trying to serve god god making mistakes failing to anticipate things a child could anticipate all that suddenly makes sense when you realize what you're actually looking at in many of those stories is the stories of prehistoric colonization and exploitation by et species turning up on the planet's surface and our ancestors remembered it wrote it down and then by accident and sometimes quite deliberately the memory of that has been hidden and suppressed through the years and my books escaping from eden the scars of eden echoes of eden are all about peeling back the layers of religion that have been put on top of these ancient stories of contact wow absolutely mind-blowing what is the earliest story of contact that has been recorded the earliest story of contact that's been recorded well um i'll answer that in two ways i'll say that the first story of contact you'll find in the bible is in genesis 1 verse 1 because it turns out that the creation story is not really a story of creation at all. When you go to the root meanings of the words, it turns out what you're looking at is the rehabilitation of a devastated planet. And we have, in effect, the eyewitness account of our ancestors as they saw other advanced beings arrive at planet Earth and begin doing the work of recovery and rehabilitation. But the biblical stories, including that one, are based on earlier stories that come from ancient Mesopotamia, from the cultures of ancient Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, Assyria. And those are the earliest stories known to humanity, which we were able to translate from the 1800s on when we found the translation key to all these stone tablets we've been digging up in ancient Iraq and uh, that part of the world. And those are the source stories or the familiar stories of creation that you and I might know from the Bible. And was there enough detail in these stories, the records of them, to state what they did on Earth specifically? Yes, well, some of the correlations are really interesting. So this terraforming that I, I was describing, there are ancient cultures all around the world which have told stories using different language, different metaphor, but to report the same visual memory. And the visual memory they're describing is of craft arriving over the floodwaters of the devastated planet and hovering. And they all make a note of how they hover hawk-like before the work begins. And when the work begins, it's done by creating vortices of wind to push back floodwaters from the land and to dry the land and begin rehabilitating safe living space. But also the work is separating the waters so that you've got safe drinking water separate from the salt ocean water. And you find those references in the Sumerian, 
in the biblical, in the African narratives, in the Filipino narrative. And as you go around the world and hear these details repeat of the process itself of rehabilitation, that's when you start listening to ancient narratives with a more open ear. And instead of looking at them as cute moral tales, and they don't really work that way if you stop and think about it, you start asking a different question, which is, what did our ancestors see? What is the memory these stories have been written to curate? Okay, and then you've got the cultural variations of these stories, because in the Eden series, Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden, you took us on a world tour. Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, Brazil, the Caribbean, the Philippines, Greece, Europe, America, Australia. What did you find that the different cultures had to offer for our understanding on this topic? Well, what's interesting is the different way we listen to different cultures for a start. So I quickly discovered that stories of contact are in cultures all around the world and that sometimes we've dismissed them as fable and sometimes we listen with more respect. So if I talk for a moment about Robert Kirk, for instance, he was a Presbyterian minister in Aberfoyle in Scotland in the 1500s. Now, anyone who knows anything about Christianity will know I've just described a very conservative person. Uh, Aberfoyle, Scotland, Presbyterian minister, very conservative, conservative theology, uh, reformed Christianity, not the sort of place we start expecting to hear about aliens. But he went into that parish and he was a good pastor. He listened to the people in that part of Scotland and learned from their experience of living in that part of the world. And he started writing down what he was being told, and it totally shifted his worldview. To such an extent, he realized he had to write about this and share this information with the world. And he wrote the book that became titled The Secret Commonwealth, in which he argues that you cannot understand how the world works until you understand that there are covert layers of government in contact with a non-human layer of governance. And he put that book out and with incredible courage to write that. And then it was published, it's been in print ever since. But if I tell you that what he was writing about were fairy stories, what do you think when you hear the phrase fairy story? You think Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. And that is the prejudice we've been given whenever we're confronted with the ancient Celtic stories of contact and abduction, whether we're listening to Scottish, Welsh or Irish. If we say the fey tradition or fairy stories, well, that's a joke, isn't it? Except it isn't. Once you listen to the stories, they're nothing like the stories of Tinkerbell, thank you very much. They're far more similar to what we would hear today from people who talk about small greys and ET abduction and hybridization. Exactly the same stories were told. Well, I discovered Robert Kirk after I discovered the tradition in Ghana. And that happened because I was preparing for the publication of Escaping from Eden, which I knew would be a controversial book. I knew it would be challenging, especially for people of faith, for someone like me to come along and say, 
some of these God stories aren't about God at all. They're really about aliens. And a few months before the book was due for publication, I suddenly remembered I hadn't told my parents-in-law about the book. And they're devout Christians <laughs> from Ghana. Their tradition is Baptist, Pentecostal. And I thought, oh, gosh, how are they going to take this? Uh, I, I'd better sit them down and <laughs> talk <laughs> them through this. So they came and stayed for the weekend. And after a weekend of lovely Ghanaian food and cuisine and we were all relaxed and happy after a couple of bottles of wine. I thought, okay, this is a moment when I can announce my book. So I told them everything I've just told you, Sean, with no idea how they would react. And they sat quite impassively with their poker faces on until I stopped speaking. And then my father-in-law, Kofi, um, leant back in his seat and he said, a penny has just dropped. And what he meant was all the stories in the Bible that don't make sense all the moments where god appears either very vicious horrible terrifying or stupid suddenly clicked into place because he realized these are stories of ancient conflicts with extraterrestrials that made better sense in an instant he could join the dots and then my mother-in-law leant forward and she said paul this is a story we already know and my jaw dropped. She said, in Ghana, we all know this. You go to school, you'll be taught the modern scientific view. You'll be taught Christian orthodoxy. But at the folkloric layer, the people know these other stories. And they are stories about a non-human presence intersecting with Project Humanity. And that this non-human presence is involved with abducting people for various reasons. Some seem to be nefarious and some not so much. There's something going on that today we would call a hybridization program. And I could not believe I was hearing this from my devout Christian mother-in-law. And then the punchline was, and we're very closely connected with um, two people through our family we're very closely connected with people who were abducted by this non-human presence for about three years in one case and then returned. And this was the story they returned with. Abduction for hybridization. And when the family heard this, it was not what they expected to hear. They assumed this person had gone missing because of a, a failed elopement or they'd been trafficked in some kind of a way. But when the person came back and said the people who took me were not human, they recognized the story because it's one that's been told in Ghana for thousands of years. And it was that realization, our closeness to the experience, that sent me on a, a tour of the world's ancestral narratives and realizing that in almost every culture, there is a version of this story told as history. We just joke about it if we call it fairy story from out of Scotland. But if you go to ancient Greece, I remember uh, visiting Greece years ago and asking the guide about the Minoan culture that seemed to appear from nowhere and had this fabulous megalithic society, seafaring society with incredible civil engineering, with air conditioning and water flow systems. Where did they get this from, I asked. And so he talked about Europa, this daughter of a, an ancient king of Phoenicia who was abducted 
by a non-human entity for hybridization and produced three hybrid children. One of them was Minos, the progenitor of the culture who built all these buildings you're seeing around you. And when he told me that, it wasn't a fairy story. It wasn't a joke. This is what you learn at school in Greece when you study the question of human origins. Where did we all come from? What's the beginning of Greek culture? Those are the stories. And we tend, in a funny way, to listen with more respect to those stories than to the fairy stories, but they are exactly the same thing. Wow. So you've described a supportive reaction there. What about biblical traditionalists who view you as a renegade? Have you had blowback on this? I have had some blowback on it. To be honest, though, I've been delighted and surprised to find that the majority response I get from people of faith is relief and encouragement and support. I hear every day from people who contact me because either they've had experiences that they are not allowed to talk about in their churches, feel anxious about describing to their families, that suggest ET contact, that suggest a populated universe. They may have had an abduction experience and it may be decades old and they've not talked about it because of the fear of ridicule. And they reach out to me and they'll often test me to see if they can trust me with their story and then they'll tell me the story. Others contact me because they've seen what I've seen in the texts. And they realize that in the Bible there are these ET entities washing around and where do they go with that information? They're not allowed to talk about it at church. And I hear from people who are ministers in training for ministry, retired ministers, regular church members, who say, thank you so much for putting this back on the table because you are breaking a taboo that is allowing people to see what they're seeing, experience what they're experiencing, and talk about it. And I've heard from so many people who say, I had this experience uh, when I was 15. It was a close encounter. And I haven't told a living, breathing soul in the five decades since. So it's often people in their 60s and 70s who are sharing experiences that they've kept bottled up for all that time because of the fear of ridicule or if they're pastors in churches, of blowback and potentially losing their jobs. And one of the reasons I'm delighted to put this on the table is knowing that all this was part of the conversation of primitive Christianity and knowing that there are pastors all around the world who know what I know and who don't have the freedom to put it out there. But if I write a book, then people can read the book and talk about it. They can make fun of me. They can turn it into an argument, whatever they want to do. But if we're discussing this ancient knowledge, then I think that's a very positive thing. Does any of this tie into Atlantis? Yes, it does. Um, I was surprised when I was doing my research for Escaping from Eden to realize that there were significant church fathers, really central figures at the beginning of Christianity, who not only believed we're in a populated universe, but concluded, as I have, that we've had contact 
and that Homo sapiens sapiens is the result of interventions from ETs modifying the life that was already here on planet Earth. So I was thrilled to find these ancient church fathers who believed that. The reason they believed that was because they had read that in Plato. And Plato, two and a half thousand years ago, had put all that forward in his writings, and he showed his maths, he showed how he'd come to these conclusions, why he thought that. And he is the reason we know about Atlantis. So Plato says his sources of information are, first of all, philosophy, or some of it we would call science, because what he's doing is applying logic to things we can all observe. And he reaches the most uh, far-reaching conclusions on that basis, showing his working all the way, and incredibly impressive. And then he talks about information he gained through contact experiences. And these were contact experiences that were brokered by a society in Athens that used um, mind-altering tea, if I can put it that way, uh, to induce an altered state of consciousness so that you could begin perceiving things you wouldn't usually perceive, and it was a contact modality. He talks openly about that. And then the third source of information was ancient ancestral information, and he talked about an ancient Greek legislator, real historical person called Solon, who had received um, information from contact with the remnant of the ancient Egyptian priesthood. And it was in their information that we hear about Atlantis, this previous civilization that was finished by what may well have been a planetary cataclysm. And the date that Plato gives for the planetary cataclysm that finished off the previous civilization lines up with what we now know about the world's most recent uh, catastrophe on that scale. And that was the Younger Dryas Cold Period with massive flooding events at the beginning and end of that. So that's from eleven and a half thousand years ago to nine and a half thousand years ago. And so my... My, I raised an eyebrow when I saw that correlation that Plato is confirming what modern scientists are saying about the dating of the most recent cataclysm. If you go to the work of Richard Firestone, he got us onto the Clovis Comet, as we now call it, because he recognized a civilization had been obliterated on the North American continent. And Plato talked about the civilization in the mid-Atlantic obliterated by a disaster on that scale. So that's where the story of Atlantis comes from. So we've got a question from one of the viewers here, which I'm quite interested in actually. Uh, Jake is wondering whether there is an anomaly or any identifier in DNA that would prove alien intervention. Oh, that's a really good question. Yes, there are some very interesting things about our DNA that would raise that question. One is the very subtle difference between us and the other primates. It's a fusing of two chromosomes. And so the question is, does that happen by accident or does it happen by design? When I was researching Escaping from Eden, I was 
surprised to discover that if you want to find real credentialed scientists willing to go on the record and say we may be the process uh, the result of a process of design or that life on earth originated off planet it will be dna research where you will go to find those scientists so if you look at the work of vladimir sherbach and maxim akukov who are leading figures in the science around genetic coding they would argue that there are patterns in our dna that strongly hint at intelligent design producing not only us as we are but all life on earth that there is something non-random about the uh, con uh, the construction of a coherent being called a whale or the coherent construction of a being called a human and they are only the most recent in the field of dna to argue for this if you go back to francis crick the co-discoverer of the double helix of dna he argued from the get-go in the 1960s that life could not have originated on earth must have come here from elsewhere he argued this on the basis of the mathematics of it and the timelines required and he put forward a view called panspermia and panspermia is the view that life in the cosmos is the rule rather than the exception and that the genetic coding for conscious intelligent biological life is part of the fabric of the cosmos every bit as much as the properties of light or of gravity and that whenever this genetic coding lands in an hospitable environment meaning a planet with water it will generate forms of life similar to the ones we're familiar with and by that theory all life in the cosmos is related we are really looking at cosmic family when we look into deep space so that was argued for from the 1960s on carl sagan was a great enthusiast for that theory in the 1960s he wrote books about it and so that's where you go to find serious scientists putting forward the idea that there's something far more interesting about the emergence of humanity than ever you or i were taught in school well next question is from jake again which specific bits of genesis refer to et arrivals and which words or phrases have been inaccurately translated sure so i mentioned genesis 1 verse 1 that's a pretty good place to start uh, that is the um, rehabilitation of the planet read that alongside the sumerian story and some light bulbs will go on and the key words in that are ruach which is known as the spirit of god and and later in the scripture it's translated that way later in the hebrew scriptures it may mean the spirit of god in the way that um christian believers and jewish believers might think of it but at the beginning genesis 1 it is describing a craft that hovers and creates vortices of wind and the word ruach at root is a thing that creates a strong wind and the word roha in amharic today is a descendant of that word and you look at how it behaves well that's what you're looking at further into the text we're given descriptions of a ruach and its equivalents with another word kavod which we've translated as glory 
that sounds like some very vague religious thing, except in the book of Ezekiel, we're given great detail as to what a glory looks like. Uh, a kavod has metallic surfaces. It has clear glass in it. It makes a roaring sound like a waterfall when it moves. It can carry two people and fly. And it was piloted by an ekie, which the root meaning of that is a life form, which the writer says looked like a human being, but obviously wasn't. So we've got ekie, ruach, kavod. We've got the word tub, which means heavy equipment. Um, and the key word, the one that got me going, was the word Elohim, which is the Bible's oldest word that gets translated as God, except it's a plural. It's a masculine plural form word that takes plural verbs, exhibits plural behaviors. And the root meaning of that word is the powerful ones. And when I saw that, I thought, why are we translating that as God? In some texts, it's God. In others, it's demons, false gods, landlords. How do we decide what that means? So in Escaping from Eden, I take the reader through a reframing exercise where I say, how do these stories change if we reread them as the stories of the powerful ones? And the stories change, but not in a random way. They flip around and they line up in parallel with the Sumerian stories. And we quickly realize the powerful ones of the Bible are the sky people, of the Sumerian stories. And we have a word for sky people today and it's ET. Honestly, my mind is just, woof. I mean, I've heard some of this stuff from David Icke. That's one thing, but to hear it from you and, and the path that brought you to it, it it's just so much more credible. Um, next question here is from Easy E. There was, and it's recorded by the Sumerian civilization that the fish god or alien in a submarine type vehicles and taught them how to farm and seed and build the first civilizations and cities. There were the first civilizations to also offer their children up for blood rituals and the statue of Belal. What would you like to say about that? Oh, there are a couple of layers to that. Um, there are a couple of layers to that, but uh, I would say that uh, Kevin, who you're speaking to previously, is talking about an ancient pattern, uh, that when you go to the Bible and you find blood rituals, uh, children being um, tormented and sacrificed is part of very long and a very dark tradition. It's there in the Bible. It's there in cultures around the world. And it doesn't really uh, uh, connect with the, the other half of the question in my mind, because the other half is about a much more benevolent contact with humanity. I think those blood rituals are rooted in what was done in times of colonization by ET entities in the past who were very, very violent and who saw humanity not only as a uh, working class but as a food source and i think there's some very dark stories in our deep past i think our species has carried some very traumatic memory uh, and we hear the traumatic memory referenced in cultures all around the world so all the world's dragon narratives i think go back to that ancient traumatic time but the other half of the story is about something nicer 
and it's from the Babylonian story of paleocontact. Now, this was translated by a Greek priest called Barossus, and he produced the story of Oannes and the Apkalu, telling of an ancient story in which the ancestors of the ancient Sumerians discover how to live as a civilization on planet Earth. Now, people who study human origins have long been fascinated by the Sumerian culture because it sort of pops up from out of nowhere in ancient Iraq. And we go from living like all the other animals on the planet's surface to having civil engineering, a legal system, mathematics, cosmology, uh, written language, literature, banking systems, trading agreements, uh, air conditioning, and all these things just appear from out of nowhere in ancient Iraq. The story of Oannes and the Akkalo is the explanation of how that happened. And the explanation is given that the ancestors of the Sumerians had an encounter with beings who absolutely mystified them. They couldn't work out, are, are they human or are they something else? Are they aquatic beings or are they land beings? And the way they depicted them was like human beings, but they had like a fish suit on them. And with all that, what's being described is the moment of first contact. I find it fascinating that the moment is described not as a moment of awe at their advanced technology, but of the local humans fingering what they're wearing. And they're saying, what is this fabric? It's so thin and it's shiny like a fish skin and it's covering all their bodies. Who wears clothing that covers almost all their bodies? Because the Sumerians at that time didn't do that. And it makes sense to me that the first reaction is, why do these people look so strange? And what are they wearing? So we're given that wonderful visual kinesthetic memory. And then we're told that in the time we spent with Oannes and the Apkalu, they taught us all the rudiments of farming, all the science of agronomy, so that we could begin animal husbandry and cultivating crops. And what's in that ancient story lines up with some very recent science because in 1998, Manfred Hoyne went in with a team from the University of Az in Norway and the Max Planck Institute and identified what appears to be the beginning of civilization as we know it, the first farm, the first place where animal husbandry and cultivation of crops was practiced in Karakadag in Southeast Turkey. And that's another huge leap in the human story that's fascinated scientists of human origins for a long, long time. It's such a massive leap forward. And Manfred Hoyne says that it's so localized, he said it may even have been just one family that suddenly worked out how to do this. Well, that's an incredible achievement because in Australia, it took William Farrer 20 years to work out how to modify one crop so that it could be grown in Australia. That was with all the advantages of 19th century science. Uh, it, his family had been in farming for generations, and it still took him 20 years to work out how to modify wheat. This one family in southeast Turkey, 10,000 years ago, there's that date again, worked out how to do that to 11 naturally occurring plants to turn them into cultivatable crops, 
and simultaneously invented animal husbandry. How do you explain that? <laughs> well, the story of Oannes and the Apkalu explains it and says it was through an intervention from outside. And that intervention was repeated all around the planet, which is why when you sit at the feet of Cherokee elders, you'll hear exactly the same story. Oh my God. <laughs> you got, you got, we've only got um, less than 10 minutes left right now. There's still, the questions are still coming in. And the next question then is, can Paul share any thoughts on, I don't know how to pronounce this, Gobleki Tepe? Who made it? Oh, yeah, Gobleki Tepe. Why was it deliberately buried pre-flood? Ah, I actually think it was buried post-flood. But what makes it so interesting, and I'm not an expert in Gobekli Tepe, but I'm very interested in it because of the dating of it. So I mentioned that first farm. 10,000 years ago is when that's been dated to. That's the beginning of civilization as we know it. That's when we go from living like animals to living like farmers, city builders, civilization builders. Except there's something wrong with that picture. Because drive uh, 800 kilometers down the road from Karakadag, that first farm, and you will reach Gebekli Tepe, still in the same country, in Turkey. And Gebekli Tepe is the megalithic remains of a megalithic society. When they fully excavated it, it's a site about 50 times the size of Stonehenge. And not only is it surprising that you're looking at a megalithic culture, but there are design aspects to it and carvings there that hint at its being part of a global civilization. So how is it we have the first farm that's 10,000 years old and then we find the remains of a megalithic culture that would appear to predate it because it was buried for its protection shortly after 10,000 years ago. So that's after the, the last massive flooding event that we know about on the planet's surface. It's intriguing timing because you can go to other places in the world, off the coasts of India, in the Gulf of Cambay, off the coasts of Japan, near Yonaguni Jima, off the coasts of Malta, and you will find the remains of megalithic cities that would have been above sea level no more recently than 10,000 years ago. So Gebekli Tepe is one of those smoking guns that says there was a civilization here before, before the first farm that we know nothing about. And I would suggest that Gebekli Tepe was buried so carefully uh, in order to preserve the information it carried and maybe protect it from being looted because it was recognized that it represented a body of knowledge that predates civilization as we know it. So the ongoing excavation of Gebekli Tepe really stands to turn on, an, on its head what we know about human history and prehistory. Well, let's see if we can get these uh, last questions in, in, the, in the final five minutes then. So we've got from Jake. Is it medically plausible that Homo sapiens are the offspring of primates and another unknown entity? Yes. Yes, it is. 
And that's what you get into when you study the chromosome difference between us and other primates. And it's also what you arrive at when you read some of the world's oldest um, narratives. So if you go to the Mayan tradition, for instance, which is an ancient tradition from out of Mesoamerica, which has stories of origins. And in the Popol Vuh, which is the expression of the Mayan tradition that was discovered in Guatemala in the very early 1700s by Roman Catholic priest Francisco Jimenez, there is a story that says that Homo sapiens and apes are the result of a long period of experimentation that was done on planet Earth. And uh, I was very intrigued when I read that because uh, the scientific view um, is that we are not descended from apes. The scientific view is that we and apes share a common ancestor. And so when I heard that language in the ancient story of the Popol Vuh, I thought, well, that's a rather interesting correlation. Long before Charles Darwin, this culture was relating us to apes, but in the sense of having a common ancestor. And I think that's what we're coming to as we do the research into chromosome two and how these chromosomes got fused to create Homo sapiens that would differentiate us so dramatically from the other great apes. Right, we've got this final question then before we end this interview, and that is, what's Paul's view on the book of Enoch, which was taken out of the Bible, but has so much relevance now? Yes, the book of Enoch, um, it has been part of the Bible in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church from the beginning, but it never really got included in the mainstream canons for Judaism and Christianity outside of Ethiopia. And I think it's because it's got some quite stretching themes in it. But it's a fascinating book because it unpacks something that is in the Bible. If you go to Genesis 6, you'll find the story of human abduction, the hybridization, by non-human entities called the Bene Elohim. And it's told so quickly in the Bible, it looks like the writer assumes we already know this abduction hybridization story. Where would we know it from? Well, the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch tells in detail what you can read in summary form in Genesis 6. The writer of Jude in the New Testament, when he refers to the uh, Enoch who's in Genesis, he quotes the Book of Enoch word for word. So he assumes we all know this book as well. It's a fascinating book. It's written through the eyes and the worldview of somebody of uh, a couple of thousand years ago. And yet he's describing close encounter experiences. He's talking about first contact. He's talking about our ancestors being taught agronomy, uh, among other things, from entities who are not human, who came and hybridized with us in the deep past. And so for all those reasons, it's a very, very interesting book. And for all those reasons, it didn't make it into the mainstream canon. Well, Paul, we've interviewed up, up almost a thousand people on this channel and you are you're right up there as one of the most fascinating people we've ever had on. We've oh, only, thank you. We've only touched on a few of the talking points. Would love to get you back if you can endure staying up into the night again at some point because there's just so much more to talk about and everyone in the chat 
is absolutely blown away by your you know level of knowledge and your delivery and your soothing voice and everything else so yeah oh thank you <laughs> thank, thanks so much paul for doing this it's been a pleasure um, and um please let the viewers know then where they can find you support you contact you watch your videos on your youtube channel sure well go to amazon and you will find and Kindle, wherever books are sold, in fact, you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. If you want to get in conversation with me, go to The Fifth Kind on YouTube or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. If you're interested in doing coaching with me or having a longer conversation, come to my website, paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S.com, and I'll be happy to get into conversation with you. Cheers. I'll definitely be clicking on those links myself. So you have a good rest i guess now and take care my friend cheers thanks sean see you next time all right bye bye